Welcome to part four of my series on how to think about social problems as myths. In this lecture, we finally get to the main animating theoretical perspective, social constructionism. But wait, isn't that the boogeyman that the blue-haired lunatics promote? Well, yes and no. Stay tuned to find out how you can use social constructionism to be a critical thinker, regardless of your hair color. Patrons this week get access to the full lecture. Visit www.patreon.com slash Ashley A. Crawley. By the end of this session, you should be able to critically question the relationship between social problems and objective harms. And that's really important. We do not necessarily worry about things in proportion to their objective harm in the world. The ascendancy of constructionism begins in the middle of the 1980s. It reaches its heyday in 2004. Okay, we are here in the subjectivist paradigm. And there are degrees of subjectivism to social constructionism. We have strict constructionism, which is like, everything is a social construction. Nothing is real. We're all just floating around. There is no truth. Um, but it is self-contradictory. Because if you notice, I just said, there is no truth. But that statement is intending to make a truth claim, isn't it? It's self-refuting. So nobody is really a strict constructionist. Nobody says, like, nothing is real. Everything is language. <laughs> because even language you're saying is real. It's, it makes no sense. Something has to be real. So we're kind of over here with social, social constructionism toward a kind of in the middle approach, uh, or uh, some people call it contextual constructionism. That yes, science is the best thing human beings have come up with to try to bring together our minds and our language and our symbols and the world out there and have them kind of match up in some way. It's the best thing we've come up with. But between the real world and human minds is a whole world of history, culture, language, which influences the way that we interpret and understand the world. That's the idea that we are, yes, we are trying to understand the world. We do science, but culture and the things that we take for granted influences even the questions that we ask of science, what we think is appropriate to bring to science at a given time. How we interpret scientific results is often the result of our own interests, our own culture, and so on. So it varies from strict to contextual approaches, where we say, like, the way that we understand this problem is a result of the social context of the time, or the fact that we think this thing is problematic is a result of the social context. Let me give you an example. The very famous example, the key example that many constructionist theorists point to is the satanic panic. And that's because there is no evidence that there were ever, you know, groups of Satanists all around the world sacrificing babies and all this sort of thing. There's no evidence that that ever existed. And yet the fear and about it, at least in the mainstream media, was really high. Or the talk about it, the level of discussion about it was very high. And this is the sort of key contextual understanding that we need to explain this and we can't explain it on the basis of a real thing that was harming people. So how do we understand it? We understand it through the social context of the time. A lot of, this is the 1980s, early 1990s. Actually, the, the panic began in 1981 with a, a book that was published as a result of, of hypnosis. This woman who believed and she had been, we know now had been gradually guided to um, think that she had been satanically abused as a child. Um, and that's what started the panic. Um, 
but this was the 1980s, a time of change in terms of gender norms. More and more women were moving into the workplace. Childcare was becoming more and more common and somewhat accepted. And there was a lot of fear about changing gender norms. There were like panics around children whose parents would give them a key because they would go home after school and their parents were still at work. So they would have the key to get into the house. They'd make themselves a snack or whatever, watch TV until their parents come, came home. And there was a lot of fear about what happened during that time as well. So this, but you couldn't at that time kind of outright say, hey, ladies, get back into the kitchen. You know, know your place in society. You are responsible for social decay. No, you couldn't say that. Instead, these underlying unconscious fears were channeled through a fear about Satanists and daycares because the women were putting their children in daycare and there was like, hmm. So as soon as somebody brought up the idea that there was a, a whole bunch of Satanists running daycare centers, you like, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's happening because those women, they don't care about their kids are putting them in daycare and they don't even know it's a bunch of Satanists. You know, it just spoke to people's pre-existing beliefs and prejudices so perfectly that it just took off. And at the same time, it spoke like when something appeals equally to the left wing of the political spectrum and the right wing of, of the political spectrum for different reasons, it is highly likely to become a big issue that everyone's talking about. So the right jumped on it because they had this, it, they may not even, they almost certainly were not conscious of it, but it spoke to their pre-existing uncertainties about gender norms and gender change, changes around gender roles. And for the left, there was also a growing panic about sex abuse in society. And so it spoke to them equally because a big part of the satanic panic was satanic sex abuse. <laughs> there was this idea that, par that paralleled this movement, it kind of flowed into it, that if you have problems in adulthood, um, it's because you have repressed sex abuse as a child and you should go to a hypnotist to uncover it. Now that's been exposed as a quite dangerous myth because people are very, very suggestive. But this is... That, that was a very powerful idea. It still kind of exists in our culture. I bet you've heard that before. Something bad could have happened to you and you repressed it. And that was like a very common belief that fed into Satanism. So on the, on the left, it spoke to this idea that there's this like hidden epidemic of sexual abuse in childhood. And on the right, it spoke to this idea of women's uh, changing roles. And it was a tacit or implicit criticism of women who put their children in childcare in order to go to work. So it spoke to the left and the right. That's the social context that we use to understand why people began to worry about something that did not exist. Does that make sense? And that is like the, the key part of sociological analysis. And I think it's really important because it helps you to be a critical thinker. <clears throat> because as soon as somebody says, panic, panic, worry, worry, this new thing, you will start to notice that it takes very definite forms. There's a lot of overlap with urban legends and folklore, the social problems that we're asked to worry about. And I want you as budding sociologists and social theorists to think, what is it about this social context that makes me want to believe it? Makes me want to worry about it. Makes me think, yeah, that's true. In spite of lack of evidence a lot of the time. And that's the benefit of this kind of approach. We look at the social context to understand why people worry about things because we do not worry in proportion to harm.
So how does social constructionism understand social problems? The definition of a social problem is alleged conditions, alleged conditions, we always use this language, putative conditions, alleged conditions. Sometimes we might say the so-called problem, but be careful with that because it sounds flippant. But we, we, we have um, distance from the conditions that people claim are harmful. We have critical distance from that. So alleged conditions culturally defined as troublesome, widespread, changeable, and in need of change. It's about alleged conditions that people argue to be widespread. It is about language and the arguments that people make about alleged conditions in the world, depending on where you are in the spectrum of strict contextual constructionism. We try not to make claims about the realness of the alleged conditions, which is really, really difficult, kind of theoretically problematic, but I'm not going to go that deeply into it. Causes? What causes social problems as language formations? As language, not the actual conditions in the world. That's where we're at language, okay? Claims making activities of people who are seeking to draw attention to a problem they believe exists in the world. So what causes something to be on the front pages of a newspaper is not the level of harm. There are lots of things that people might think are harmful in the world. But if nobody gathers together and engages in activities to construct a compelling case for your care, for your attention, then it does not become a social problem. So conditions don't just magically speak for themselves, right? Human beings must make arguments that allege the existence of a problem, and they must do so in a way that is compelling enough to capture the attention of media gatekeepers. The media is fickle. And you have to be careful about this because I get a lot of papers that say the media does X. It's the media, the media. Stop doing that. Stop. From this point forward, not going to do that anymore. Okay? No more saying the media does X. The medium, a thing that translates something. So people have ideas that something is problematic. They take it to the editor. They usually will group together and they'll become like a mothers against drunk driving or something. And they say, this kind of problem, which you think about it in this way, and has this kind of solution. It's constructed. They must construct reality. They bring that construction to the attention of the media gatekeeper, an editor, and they have to argue it's the biggest problem ever because the media does not care about problems. They care about your attention. Have you ever heard, if it bleeds, it leads? You ever watch American news? I, I do not recommend it. You will leave with clinical anxiety. They have perfected this. They have perfected this. It is so scary, so bloody. You think like a house is on fire in every city in the country because as soon as there's a fire, TV crews, because if it bleeds, it leaves. It gets your attention. That's all they care about. They want your attention. And after a couple of days, they don't care about that story anymore. It's old news. News, the new, they want novelty. So if you don't have claims making activities, people who organize, the media will just forget about the issue. A fire, whatever, until somebody brings it together. We're having more fires than usual, someone says. My organization is coming together to stop fire I don't know, flammable materials being on buildings. And then when something else comes up, another fire comes, 
they're there to say, ah, this is the third fire. We have a problem. But people have to do that. The media doesn't usually do that themselves. It's a very good paper by Lau where he makes a distinction between construction by the media and construction through the media. Yes, the media exert a subtle influence on the message. As Marshall McLuhan famously said, the medium is the message. The medium exerts a subtle influence on the message. That is true. Every medium has different values. However, the bigger part of claims making, the bigger part of social construction is through the media. The media is how you capture people's attention. You get access to the biggest possible audience. You want to get on the mainstream media to get the most amount of attention. To do that, you must be aware of the values of that medium. And therefore you construct the problem through the media. So stop saying the media does something. They don't care. All they want is your attention. That's it. That's where the money comes from. You, your eyeballs are the product. <laughs> you are the commodity that news media are selling. They want as many eyeballs as possible. Anybody know why? Let's say Sky News says we have 50,000 pairs of eyeballs. Why do they care? Why do they want to get somebody on there who's not going to be boring? They don't want the greatest experts in the world. The greatest experts in the world are boring. They want somebody with blue-green hair who's quick, right? Why? If it gets attention. Why do they want attention? Money. Where does the money come from? No. You don't buy Sky News, do you? Maybe you pay, maybe you pay for your cable, but that's a tiny part of it. Where's the money coming from? Ah, yeah, that's it. Advertising. That's those are the real consumers of media. They're the ones who pay for it all. Unless it's the BBC and then <laughs> it's your license fee. But for the vast majority of media, it is advertising. If you are interested in that whole theory that's called the propaganda model by Noam Chomsky. You ever heard of Noam Chomsky? If you were like an anarchist, punk rock kid, you probably heard of Chomsky. Anyways, propaganda model, hugely influential. It talks about how the real source of funding is not the viewer. The viewer is the thing that is being sold. You are Your attention is the commodity. Sky News, ITV, whatever, all these private companies. You are the commodity. Your attention is the commodity that they sell to advertisers. Advertisers want their ads shown to the biggest possible audience. So all of these channels have an incentive to, well, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Get your attention. They want something when you grab your pearls and you're in shock. That's what gets your attention. So when you watch the news, bear in mind, there's a whole system behind it. And they're just trying to get your attention. Because it's in the front pages, because there's some expert who says, this is the biggest problem ever. Don't believe it. Step back and say, this is being reported because it captures my attention but it may not be the most pressing issue in the world. Okay, all of this, this is claims making activities. Without that, there's nothing to keep the attention of the fickle news media on that issue that requires organization. So what conditions lead to this situation? Well, social interactions between complainants and a variety of receivers. That whole story that I just told you, organized groups who try to capture the attention of the news media, of a variety of media these days, maybe podcasts and um, uh, alternative media becoming increasingly important. What are the consequences? 
Well, it depends how successful. Uh, it can be panic. We need to be careful here because usually the methods that we use in social constructionism are not appropriate to ascertain how much the public is actually panicked. In fact, moral panic theory, which has the same kind of underlying theory, but it's not the one that I'm talking about today, um, but they recognize and they explicitly say it, a population, even the majority or even like a good portion of the population does not need to be panicked for there to be a moral panic. It's that you are being invited to panic. And this was an argument that I tried to make in the People's Lockdown Inquiry. I was invited to submit a piece with a journalist and she kept saying the population was so fearful because the government was saying about they, they should be panicked and scared. And I was like, I don't know how fearful the population actually was, but it is certain that there was a climate in which fear was encouraged as the appropriate and moral response to the situation. Even if you yourself was, were not fearful. I was not particularly fearful, but I knew that that was considered morally bad. <laughs> and I knew in polite conversation, I had to talk about how fearful I was. It became a moral norm, I think, and I argued in that piece, to be fearful, regardless of how much fear there actually was in the population. I think certainly some groups were very fearful, but interestingly, probably in proportion to their risk, like young people were not particularly fearful. Older people were. That makes sense. <laughs> that kind of accords with the risk profiles of the disease. But, you know, there became a, a moral panic in the sense that it was moral to be panicked. <laughs> so you don't have to say that people, the masses, became frenzied. If you were not, you're not special. You are the masses. You probably, that one thing that I've learned as a human is <laughs> that if I have a thought, I'm probably not alone in it. Have you ever noticed that before? Like there's just nothing unique in the human experience. If you have a thought, probably someone else has had the same thought. And that's that's highly likely. Um, so. If you are not panicked, then probably a good portion of the population also are not panicked. If you had doubts, probably a good portion of the population also had doubts about anything. But the satanic panic, for example, a humongous proportion of the population had doubts. But it was considered immoral and wrong to question children because the claims makers were using the voices of babes. It's a very common thing, right? Because we have an idea of children as like, they never lie, they have voices. But they're very impressionable. Anybody who has kids know that they just want to please you. But they were taking the children's voices and they were saying, are you calling these children liars? And people were like, well, no. You know, it was not a good kind of situation. But the, the population was not necessarily panicked. In fact, a good deal of the, the, of the population were skeptical. But it still became powerful. People still went to jail. It became a part of policy. It took a long time for people to feel safe speaking up. We have seen this many times throughout history. Okay, so it doesn't mean that everybody is concerned. And there's a lot of stuff about the Salem witch trials as well, like how much people actually believed it. And you could see, like, there were times when this, if you look at, like, the records, there were times when their stories were explicitly contradicted and it became clear to everyone they were lying and they just kept going. <laughs> they just kept going because they kind of believed that everyone else believed and they wanted land and there were all kinds of other things. Okay, so the consequences, policies that can hide value judgments this is a big one. 
where people are like, no, science says this is the biggest thing ever. But science, so science then becomes politicized and people claim that it's just uh, people in white lab coats have discovered this new thing. It's not how it works anymore. Science is heavily politicized. Be careful about it. Yes, science is the most wonderful thing that human beings have constructed to try to understand the world, but it is not free of culture. And that's what constructionism helps us to do, to look when there are evidence-based policies, the value judgments that underlie them, because everybody uses so-called science to justify their positions, and they can't all be right. And then solutions, here's the deal, nothing. Social constructionists tend to not offer solutions. And this is one of the big criticisms and part of the reason why social constructionism has kind of waned in sociology. And we've moved to back to kind of critical theory a little bit is that we don't offer solutions. We don't because we are interested in deconstructing the problem. So we're not interested in how to solve the Satanism problem. <laughs> we don't think there is a problem. We think it's overblown or we think what, what's really being talked about is something else. But we do sometimes offer solutions. So uh, you might offer, you might say, look, this is overblown. This is, if you have policies on the basis of this panic, you're going to have bad policies that are punitive. They're probably going to affect marginalized people because they pretty much always do when you get new laws in. They disproportionately affect Black, ethnic minority, uh, poorer women. It's very common. So if you have bad laws, you don't think them out because you ratcheted up this expectation that policymakers must act now, act now. Well, then a social constructionist sociologist will say, no, you need to understand that what's happening here is you are worried, you think you're worried about this thing, but you're actually talking about this other thing. You need to slow down and be careful here. So you can see why social constructionists sometimes take unpopular positions, because in the moment when everybody in policy or in the news, at least, is freaking out and saying, Something must be done. Something must be done. People are suffering. Children are suffering. Think of the children. We're like, all right, let's take a step back here. Let's deconstruct this and see. Let's, you know, have cool heads and figure out what's really being talked about here. And then we'll come forward and say, look, this is, you're asking people to consider, like I just posted on TikTok, uh, a clip on gambling where there was a, a report that was like, gambling is causing a, a rash of suicides. And I was a bit skeptical because I know that for a long time, the gambling lobby has been trying to medicalize gambling. I'm not totally sure why that is, but for a long time, they've been doing that and they've been searching for different medical explanations. And then they have like the broadest explanation where they're like, gambling is a medical problem because it causes harm. Well, in that sense, everything that causes harm is a medical problem. Interestingly, how addictive it's designed to be, the vast majority of people gamble a few times and they're all right. Some people, though, become heavily addicted and there aren't actually good treatments for it. And it's a real, like gambling, alcoholism, these things are very, very difficult to deal with. Very difficult to deal with. But to turn it into a medical issue and kind of send it to the NHS, policymakers like to do that because they're like, oh yes, uh, we'll have new funding for treatment on the NHS for this thing. And they just kind of brush it over there. <laughs> but you can't necessarily treat that as a purely medical issue. So I was a little bit, um, it's a little bit, I, I tried to put forward uh, a critique on television of this. And I, so I clipped it and I put it on TikTok and it was like, this woman is coming at me because how dare you? How dare you question this thing? 
Because to say that something is medical also entails a whole framework of meaning, lamelessness, which actually I think is important. And sometimes, even though I think something might not be a medical problem, I will still say, fine, you know, I'm not going to argue against it because it entails blamelessness. And that's that's good, I think. And then we say, oh, this person's not an evil person. They need help. So I had a lot of people kind of, <laughs> and I was just like, hey, turn off notifications. <laughs> but that's why that you, you will often take an unpopular position because the reason why something gets onto the headlines and people say something must be done is because it has been constructed in a way that appears impossible to question. It's just, yeah, who doesn't want to be happy? Who could possibly be against mental health? Who couldn't possibly believe the children? Who could possibly, you know, it's, it's, it's constructed as a valence issue. That is as something totally agreeable. And a critical sociologist has to step back and question even that. And sometimes it means that you get a lot of flack on the internet. <laughs> but generally, it's really important to do that. We Every society needs people who will think critically when the band, or who will like not jump on the bandwagon when it's going by. Someone who will say, the emperor is not wearing any clothes. And I think that's a really important offering of the social constructionist perspective. That's me trying to sell it to you. Okay, so to recap then, objectivist approaches say there is a problem out there. We worry about it because it is objectively bad. Crime is on in the newspapers because we it is objectively bad. Racism, sexism, all these things are just objectively bad. It doesn't matter how human beings make sense of it. It doesn't matter. Language doesn't matter. It's like the problem is presented to you. And your job as a sociologist, an objectivist sociologist, is saying, okay, how many people are affected? How do we make less of those people? How do we make the condition less painful? Whatever. That's objectivism. That definitely has a place. But there are some problems with this. Harmful conditions are not always identified as social problems. I always used to use this example of heightism, but I've noticed recently that there's like some claims making on the internet about <laughs> heightism as a social problem and like tall privilege. I've heard that. I don't know if you have, but I used to always use this as an example. Men of shorter stature um, tend to get passed up for promotions, are less likely to get jobs, find it harder to get mates, and so on. And yet we do not consider heightism to be a social problem, even though one could argue it causes harm. Why not? Well, you could do a whole social constructivist analysis about why heightism was not is not considered a social problem. And in fact, there is an area of sociological research that looks at problems that fail to take off, which is interesting in and of itself. Like you can look at something, a big issue of why it took off and kind of deconstruct it. But it's also interesting to look at issues that don't take off. Like why not heightism? Because while men we typically understand to be in power and have more privilege and so on. So their claims don't get looked on. Nobody ever organized and had like a men against heightism <laughs> organization. That, and no one was ever successful in constructing that as a, a as a social problem that at least was convincing to a good proportion of maybe the population or the media and policymakers, more, more importantly, the media and policymakers. Okay, so not everyone, so people may disagree on why a condition is considered a social problem. How do we make sense of that? If problems are just objectively harmful, why do we even have the argument about whether or not something is problematic? It's because certain groups construct reality differently. They single out certain things as problematic and attribute values to them, and other groups do it differently or don't do it at all. 
So if nobody organizes around something, it will not come to be considered a social problem that requires the attention of the news media and policymakers. Not everyone will agree conditions are harmful. Social problem definitions may vary greatly. How do we make sense of the fact that so many different ways of understanding the problem exist and only some of those definitions become paramount, if any? We need some other criteria to make sense of why we worry about some things and not others. Even when harm might be very great to large numbers of people, uh, and then and then not even exist in other situations like the satanic panic. And yet it's all one thing never gets mentioned. The other thing is all over the news and in talk shows and so on. Okay. So a few key, a few key terms here, a few key definitions. One of the very first people to put forward what we now call a social constructionist understanding of social problems was Herbert Bloomer. And he says, a social problem exists primarily in terms of how it is defined and conceived by society. A social problem is its definition, is it is language. And Bloomer, of course, is one of the key figures of symbolic interactionism. So one of the key feeders of social constructionism is symbolic interactionism. Um, the very first theorists were symbolic interactionists. Uh, Herbert Bloomer, Spectre and Katsuzi, their 1977 book, also symbolic interactionists. But in 1966, Berger and Luckman put forward their famous book, The Social Construction of Reality, which brings a lot of these ideas together. They say man is capable of producing a world that he then experiences as something other than a human product. So when we read the newspapers, we read that as, as though we are simply looking at a mirror of reality, right? And this is tough for me to explain to you because you probably don't read newspapers. <laughs> So for you, it's like, oh, the next step to being aware and a good citizen would be like, if I picked up a newspaper and read it, and I'm trying to take you beyond that, I'm trying to say like, and if you do pick up a newspaper and read it, you must think critically about what is there because it is not a mirror of reality. It is a human product. It is storytelling. It is compelling storytelling and it is rhetoric. And we experience it as something other than that. We're the only things that do that. We're the only things that tell stories about ourselves and forget that we were ever telling stories and just think that that's the way things are. And it becomes just the way things are. This is what men do. This is what women do. That's just the way things are. And people always tell me, it's just human nature. And I'm like, yeah, but the people of the blood, they live entirely different lives. They take their children, the boys away from the women at seven years old. They're like, continue to be productive members of society or like it's just human nature that you need to tell your child this many words before the age of one yeah but those people in I can't remember where <laughs> um they put their children at the back of a tent until the age of one and they don't talk to them at all and they grow up to be contributing members of their society so that can't be right we experience all of these things as just human nature as uh, this is science. This is the way things are. We don't realize we're actually talking about our own cultures. We are reifying our culture. We're making it real, making it seem biological, making it seem not a human product, not a story we've told ourselves, but the real nature of human beings. But as soon as you learn about other cultures, you, that starts to break down. Oh, shoot. <laughs> I thought that was just human nature. And then you find in this other culture, people don't live like that. And that that is, in fact, that is what happened. The age of colonialism led to the birth of anthropology. People started to go all around the world and they were quite perplexed by the fact that everything they thought was true and right and just human nature 
was different everywhere they went. And that's actually the root of a lot of these theories is this recognition that pretty much every human institution is subject to variation all around the world. Human nature is extraordinarily variable. But we tell stories about our human nature, about our society that then come to seem natural. And we forget that they were ever human products. So it is subjective reactions from the subjectivist approach, not objective conditions that make a problem. No reaction, no problem. No activity, no organization to bring the attention of the alleged problem to others, no problem. So the problems vary country by country because the different experiences in those countries and the different cultural norms shape what people see as bad. Social problems are not a type of condition, but rather a process of responding to alleged conditions. Social problems are not conditions out there in the world. They're processes. Humans processes, activities, writing letters, lobbying, getting funding, trying to capture the attention of editors, coming up, making an organization, crafting rhetoric that will be convincing. And that is a process that involves social construction. And the key point here, the take home message, we do not necessarily worry in proportion to the harm. Okay, I've said this about 15 different ways. Have you got it? <laughs> we do not worry in proportion to the harm. We worry in proportion to the good claims making, drawing our attention to the alleged existence of harms. <clears throat> so people have to allege there are harms. And to the extent that they're successful at that, it will be a social problem. We do not worry in proportion to the uh, harm. Let me give you an example. Anybody ever heard of poisoned Halloween candy? Show of hands, it's strangers at Halloween. Yeah. Anybody afraid of that? Did you have your candy checked when you were a kid? It's not a big deal here. Did you show hands who trick-or-treated? Okay, okay. So you probably heard of the phenomenon called Halloween sadism or Halloween sadism. And this is the belief that strangers poison children or otherwise give out contaminated treats on Halloween. It is widely believed, and yet there is no evidence of happiness. Show of hands who finds that surprising. Did you know that this doesn't happen? I was gonna create some videos actually around Halloween if I'd had the time to kind of try to put this myth to bed because there was a like a million viewed video on YouTube that was like, and here's all the times that Halloween status have done this thing. And like each and every one of them, I knew the story behind it and I just wanted to like do piece by piece. But anyways, there's no evidence that this happens except in a few cases, which I'll explain. So Joel Best, who's done a lot of research on this, he says, I've been unable to find a substantiated report of a child being killed or seriously injured by a contaminated treat picked up in the course of trick-or-treating. But you might be thinking, every year there are reports. Okay, let's go into it. So one case, there's one case of a dentist in 1959 who had given out laxatives that made 30 children ill. And this was such a big deal, it sparked a nationwide manhunt. And yet we believe this happens all the time. <laughs> oh, strangers, they just give out candy with nails in it. And everyone's like, oh, say that be. No, this like create, sparked a nationwide manhunt. It was a really big deal. The one time someone did this in 1959. If it were common, it would be widely reported. And yet there's no verifiable evidence 
in national newspapers, medical journals, nor crime statistics, key being verifiable evidence. Every year, there are claims that it has happened that often turn out to be hoaxes, because here's what happened. And social construction doesn't just talk about reality and leave it at that. It also influences reality. It influences what we do. Because we have certain constructions and beliefs in the world, we act differently. So there's a widespread belief, I'll use a different example now, that random violence is common. Show of hands, who is afraid that you're going to get randomly attacked when you're just walking around? Yeah, sometimes I am. I'm probably not afraid, maybe I should be. But <laughs> did you know that that is extraordinarily rare? And when it happens, it is shocking, utterly shocking. But people think this happens all the time and that that's actually the biggest risk you face. No, the biggest risk you face is in your own home with your family <laughs> And even that's thankfully relatively small. The vast majority of people you know, don't have problems with, with violence in the home. But that's the biggest area where it happens. It's not random people in the street. It's not random people coming into your house, terrorizing you, torturing you, and doing all these things. Okay, it happens, but extraordinarily rarely. And yet we fear it so much. But see, the belief that this happens all the time leads people who wish to kill a family member, for example, to try to hide their tracks by claiming it was random violence. And so there have been lots of cases of people who have killed a family member or done something terrible and tried to hide it by saying, oh, it was random criminals just came into the house and killed my, stabbed my wife 15 times and just left. <laughs> Weird. People don't do that. Crime is patterned. Crime is patterned. You get, you know, something terrible like that happens if you're involved in like the mafia or organized crime or something like that, not just randomly. Um, but people believe it happens all the time. And so then the police go to these places and they know immediately. They're like, this is not random because that just doesn't happen. But there is a widespread perception that it does. So what happens is people believe it happens all the time. So they will hoax it thinking, oh yeah, it's just another one of those things. So they, most of the reports turn out to be hoaxes. You know, a kid get, wanting to get a bit of attention by putting a pin in the chocolate bar, that sort of thing. And when it, when it is revealed to have been a hoax, the papers then don't report that. You have to actually dig to find that information. So what winds up happening is then every year on the news, <clears throat> there will be, especially American news, there will be reports of all these Halloween sadists who did all these terrible things. And then they don't report when it's revealed to have been a hoax. So this leads to the perception that it's a bigger problem than it is. But there's little reason to believe that this would happen. As I said, crime is patterned. People do not usually attack strangers. And in fact, on the whole, it is extremely difficult in situations where you want this, like in war, it's actually really hard to get strangers to harm strangers. They have to do all sorts of gymnastics like a great cause of religion or whatever to try to get people to kill each other. And still a lot of people will lose heart in the battlefield. It's a common thing. So they've developed like drone technology and stuff specifically to get around the fact that people don't like harming each other. It's really rare for strangers to harm strangers. So that's one reason why you should suspect that people wouldn't do this. The other reason is that, as I said, crime is pattern. People harm each other for reasons. 
They have reasons. They may not be reasons that you would agree with, but they are reasons. People just don't like, yeah, I felt like giving a child a nail. Like people don't do that. There's a reason for it. And in fact, some of the cases, for example, pixie sticks. You heard the pixie sticks story? Yeah. Um, I, this used to be new information. I see nodding heads now. You, you're all on the internet. You've heard this before. So there was a case of a father who uh, hand, who gave his children and I think his nieces and nephews poison pixie sticks and then claimed that it was Halloween sadism, that oh, they were just given out on his treats. It was quite clear that that was not the case. You see, he had a reason to want to kill his children. He had taken out life insurance policies on his children, and that is why he poisoned them. Very sad story. Um, but again, there is a pattern there. There is a reason, not a reason we would ever agree with, but there is a reason. People will say, oh, they're drug dealers are giving out drugs. Why would drug dealers give out drugs? <laughs> they're not usually in the business of handing out their commodities for free, especially to children, in a way that may draw attention to them. They just don't do that. That's another common thing. I think teenagers say that all the time, where they're like, oh, my, they'll buy marijuana. It's back in the day. I don't think it's true anymore. And they'll be like, oh, it was laced with something. It was laced with a harder drug. Uh, it's a very common thing that people will say. But if you look at studies, this sort of thing doesn't seem to often happen. And why would it? Because drug dealers will not give away a more expensive drug for free, for the fun of it. So why would drug dealers give away their drugs? Crime is normally not random, but pattern. Okay. So poison Halloween candy, the third point that I wanted to make. Uh, return, uh, reports turn out to be hoaxes. Revelation is not widely recorded, as I, as I said. And the deaths that were initially attributed to random violence of Halloween sadists, just go around for no good reason killing children, actually turn out to be, from natural causes, accidental poisoning. So if you think about it, like the United States has 330 million people. It happens that people die on Halloween and it is attributed then to Halloween sadism and it turns out to be natural causes. Accidental poisoning or intentional poisoning by a family member. And this occurred after, as I said, the uh, initial story had already spread and people thought, ah, that happens all the time. The people give out poison candy. So if I'm going to poison my child, then I'll just blame it on those crazies who do this all the time. And the police are not fooled because they know it doesn't actually happen all the time. It is an urban legend. Urban legends are passed around, especially in the age of social media, and tend to be told as if they were true. One of the key hallmarks of the urban legend, does anyone know? It happened to, anybody know? A friend? No, a ha it happened to a friend of a friend of mine. It's like the key hallmark of an urban legend. It happened to a friend of a friend of mine. My husband will even tell me these. No, my brother's friend. No, seriously, really, really, this really happened. I'm like, I heard this story when I was 18 in Canada. You're not telling me this just happened two weeks ago in Greece. I'm sorry. It's an urban legend. And it's amazing when you see them in the wild and this happens and you hear the person say, happened to a friend of a friend of mine. And I'm like, that's an urban legend. Oh my gosh. So urban legends get passed around as though they are true. And, the, and there are specific reasons why we like to repeat them. We hear the story and we go, ah, yes. That is an inside of our minds without even realizing. We go, like the urban legend of um, Kentucky Fried Rat. Who's heard the story of the Kentucky Fried Rat? Show of hands? Yeah? So the story has lots of variations. 
there's a whole index of folklorists have collected all these variations and studied them. But it's typically like this, young woman, newly married, liminal period, very common. Newly married young woman is going to make a wonderful dinner for her spouse, but she can't cook. So she goes to Kentucky Fried Chicken and she buys a bucket of chicken, takes it home and does it up like a meal. She lights some candles, they're sitting down, a nice candlelit meal. She bites into what she thinks is a uh, leg of chicken and she screams and she looks and turns on the lights and looks down and it's a rat, a Kentucky Fried Rat. And now people tell this story all the time. Anybody hear this in the wild? Show of hands, anybody get told this by a friend? Yeah, did you get told it as though it was true? Yeah, so people like to pass these stories around because, well, one, that naughty woman, she was supposed to know how to cook. She was supposed to cook the meal herself. And then at the end, she gets her comeuppance. Right, she gets punished immediately. Schadenfreude. Laugh. We laugh at this person's well-deserved misfortune. So we tell the story again. Another reason is, ah, yes, KFC, they would do that, wouldn't they? Evil corporations. Can we really trust what's in our food? And there's a whole kind of story to be told about how it's a bit weird that we get our sustenance from faceless corporations. And so we tell that story again and again and again. It's the same thing with Halloween sadism as an urban legend. We tell the story because it, it, when we hear it, we go, ah, yes, that's just what evil people do. And our vulnerable children, how dare we allow them out with strangers? It is a way of expressing fears that, well, Joel Best is writing in the case of America, but you could equally say this elsewhere, expressing fears that Americans are no longer safe our social breakdown, our atomization, the fact that we no longer trust our neighbors. And so we express this, we allow our children to go out trick-or-treating, less and less now, unfortunately, partially because of this urban legend, but we don't, we are worried about it. And so we express our fears and our distrust of our neighbors through these urban legends. So urban legends are contemporary, orally transmitted tales, usually orally transmitted, now they're all over the internet, often depict a clash between modern conditions and some aspect of a traditional lifestyle, right? Goodness of children versus the new evils of crime in, modern, in the modern world. They express doubts about modern life and other cultural fears. And the claims about threats to children reflect our anxieties about the future and ambivalence about the adult world. You heard that children are the future, children are the future. This implies that adults are not, <laughs> that adults are not in control. So we project everything, our culture projects everything onto children. We tend to worry a lot about children. Threats to children get a lot of attention. So it reflects that deep rooted cultural fear that adults are not really in control and we put everything onto children and we, therefore we worry a lot about children. Okay, so that is an example of a problem that we think exists, but has no basis in reality or very little basis in reality. And we can understand this in terms of the social context of changing social norms in America and increasingly in the UK. And that's the value of doing this kind of research because otherwise you'd have seen a newscast, you know, oh, I'm not letting my kids out, let them out, it's okay. <laughs> Halloween is really fun for children. They get to dress up, they usually really like it. And it's extraordinarily rare, extraordinarily beyond rare. 
Watch your partner, not your neighbors. <laughs>